0: This is the Veritas Forum podcast, a place for generous dialogue about the ideas that shape our lives.
1: I mean, really trying to build empathy through imagination, I think, is one of the one of the most important ways we can really start to pursue this. To really think through the people you disagree with most to understand their point of view and where they're coming from, and to really, for a moment, kind of let leave aside the way you think about things to really understand where they're coming from. I think so much good comes from that.
0: This is your host, Carly Regal. Today, I'm sharing with you a conversation at a Veritas Forum event at the University of Cincinnati in October 2021. The speakers you will hear from are Joshua Swamadas of Washington University in St. Louis and Peter langland Hassan of the University of Cincinnati as they discuss the role of imagination in our humanness and identity. You can learn more about the Veritas Forum and talks like these by visiting veritas.org. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Uh, The
2: Veritas Forum is a place for people to try to connect some of their more um, fundamental thoughts about the meaning of life and our place in the universe to research questions they might be pursuing or specifically the question about imagination and and its relationship to um, being human. So I'll say a few things about that just to introduce where I'm coming from with this. So I've worked on the question of imagination for a pretty long time now. and um, I think of imagination just most generally as the ability to think about possibilities, to consider ways the world isn't, uh, but could be. Uh, and um, a way that, you know, allows us as, as human beings, as organisms to sort of break free of the cycle of cause and effect of being sort of immediately caused by something in the environment to do something else, um, or to immediate, you know, always just to immediately pursue our desires, instead step back cognitively, think about different alternatives, and then potentially act on those alternatives to uh, bring new things into being. Um, and I think one way I try to highlight the centrality and the importance of imagination is to say that uh, if I was to awaken someday, uh, having lost my imagination, it wouldn't really be me who, who woke up, uh, because being, having an imagination is too central to the essence of what I am. It's not something like vision that I could potentially lose or the ability to walk, which I could potentially lose and still be the same person. I think if I really didn't have imagination at all, it wouldn't be me. Um, So um, I do think it it is really important then to to what it is to be a human Um, to connect all this about imagination to my more general beliefs about the way uh, the universe is structured. I've, uh, I'm an atheist and a humanist, which means I um, uh, believe there's not an intelligent designer behind uh, uh, our existence, And uh, but I also think that humans are capable of doing great good for each other and for leading, uh, capable of leading meaningful lives. And um, tying those views to imagination, I think it's sort of one of the greatest feats of imagination uh, that we have arrived at sort of collaboratively, the scientific Understanding we have of our origins, however incomplete it may still be. Um, That there's nothing, you know, once you really uh, sort of meditate on that sort of naturalistic scientific story about our origins, there's really nothing more, you know, awe inspiring or incredible to me than this idea that um, there was a physical universe, matter moving around in various ways, and somehow some of it eventually gained consciousness became aware not just of the environment and things around it, but that it itself existed in this world, and then both developed the means for how we might come to understand uh, what we're doing here, how we got to be here, and and that we've already made so much progress in understanding how this all came to be. And so when I meditate on that, I feel a real uh, sense of awe about that, and um, that it's easy, I think, sometimes to lose track of. Um, And so, um, I guess you know, my hesitation in terms of pursuing a more theological approach is partly grounded in the thought that um, it's really one of our highest goods and most significant accomplishments that we've arrived at this conception of how we came to be and how the universe works and how the universe universe itself came to exist um, without relying on an idea of an intelligent designer, and that. It would be a kind of betrayal of that highest good that we have of our own imaginations to go with um, what might seem at first the more obvious uh alternative that we came to be in roughly the the universe came to be in roughly the way that we came to be from our own parents so um so i do kind of favor the story um the naturalistic story we get from from science uh as a kind of vindication and a celebration of our own, uh, of our imagination and, and what it means to be human.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Peter. Um, you wrote this book called Imagining It, I'm uh, sorry, Explaining Imagination, which I really um, enjoyed uh, looking through a bit. Uh, I hope we get a chance to talk about the different types of imagination there are, because there's quite a few types, right? <laughs> and then also a chance to talk about what might be actually uniquely human because it seems like in some ways imagination can be shared by other animals but in some ways there's some aspects of it that we really only observed in other humans right
2: yeah i would agree
1: In, in fact i'd say that there's something very distinctive about many types of human imagination i liked how you discussed fiction fiction isn't a lie um it's something, it's like an alternate world that we create and we enter and very actively participate in when we watch a movie or or read a book. Um, even fan fiction is this very real sense of trying to kind of consider this very obviously false counterfactual world in a way to really make sense of it and make it real. And there's something valuable about that. There's, you talk about the idea of fictional truths, and I think that actually makes sense too. So I I think that that is really something, those are questions I really think about a lot. Uh, I mean, I'm a biologist and I deal with how the human body works and I study evolution and all these things. And one of those questions that comes up is, are we really different from other animals? And, And in a lot of ways we're very, very continuous with other animals, but in some ways we're very different and people point to language at times, but I do think that actually uh, imagination might be one other way to look at it. If we can parse it out, maybe to, see, to talk about what is it that's that's strange about the human condition, right? <clears throat> uh, I think, um, as I think about that too, I think imagination is really useful for some of the really pressing realities that we face right now. One of the thoughts that kept on coming to my mind as I was really thinking about this was uh, Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech at the type of uh, social imagination he had about how the world could look that wasn't actually realized, right? <laughs> he looked at the world that he had, uh, which when you think about the boldness of a type of imagination, it's not like there was great evidence that a better world was possible. I mean, from a purely empirical point of view, maybe, uh, maybe that was all that was possible, right? But uh, there was something in that imagination of a better world that actually gave us hope to actually pursue something and actually kind of achieve something better. I think that's actually really powerful about how um, imagination can actually be how we construct better worlds, too, and think about it. And I think when I think about our current moment, I think most people recognize, um, at least most students I deal with, uh, most people younger than me realize that the world that we have right now is not the best world possible. So what would be a better world? I think we have to imagine that. And I think imagination is really important in how we map out and think about what could be a better way of interacting with one another. And the final thought I had is, you know, one way I've been thinking through that is stuff that came out of my book. And I'm really intentional on in how I use fiction in that book. Um, my book is called The Genealogical Adam and Eve. I looked at, you talked about kind of like this naturalistic view of how everything got to be the way it is. And you said that you found a lot of uh, beauty in it. And I agree, I actually see a great deal of beauty in it too. There's this other account of origins, um, which I'm not sure how familiar with it, but yeah, I'm sure you've heard a little bit about it, this idea of human origins from Adam and Eve, right? And so what I was really wanting to see is, you know, this has been a place, where there's been a lot of conflict for a really long time, but is this really, really necessary? And so I did a very philosopher sort of move. I considered like a, the possibility of a scenario that may or may not be true that shows how both things can be true at the
2: same time, right? So an it. what's that? It's a very imaginative combination you have there, yeah. Is it possible? People say it's not possible to combine these two, but you said yeah. maybe they've overlooked this possibility for combining them, yeah. sure. So
1: then maybe you still think one is false, so like a person who, I mean, so on one hand I'm turning to the Christian who thinks evolution is false, right, and I'm saying, hey, you think evolution is false, fine, I'm not going to argue with about that, but kind of enter the science fiction world where evolution is true. Hmm and let's kind of work out that science fiction. In that world, how do we think about scripture? And is this a possible world where that could be the case?
0: I I just want to butt in here and interject a question uh, for you to to discuss a bit that is springboarding off of something you said earlier. You you said that the human species, there's some continuity with other species. And so uh, I just want to pose the question, as both of you consider from your perspectives what it means to be human, what do you think uh, or should I say is the human species uh, supreme uh, on this planet we seem to be the only ones who have this uh, ability to have these complex thoughts this imagination that you're describing so does that justify a sense of human supremacy uh, does it justify a sense of ownership over the planet if we could discuss that
1: Oh I don't like the term supremacy and ownership but um <laughs> well I guess um, Well, how do you answer that, Peter? I kind of gave my initial take on that.
2: Yeah, well, so, um, right. So I I would think on the one hand, we do have some exceptional abilities for imagination uh, that aren't, I don't think, that aren't shared, that aren't shared with other animals and things. Um, And one of them is the ability to to connect into what Josh was saying, the ability to hope. You know, imagine, hope requires imagination uh, by framing a, a way things are, aren't now, but maybe they could be. Um, and but in any case, does this make us so on one hand, it's a superior cognitive ability. Does it make us superior flat out to another um, species or, or thing? I would hesitate. I would say no, in the sense that a tree is better at being a tree than than I am, you know. Um, and I would say that, you know, having an imagination is part of being human. I'm being better at being a human than than a tree is. Um, and maybe I'm particularly taken with some of our uh human traits and abilities, more so than I am with the trees, even though you know photosynthesis is remarkable in its own is in its own right. But um, you know, I don't know if I'm just sort of rooting for the home team when I say that, you know, consciousness and imagination is m- more if I were to say it's more significant than than say photosynthesis, uh I might you know hedge on that a little bit and just say that it is flat it is very significant and important, you know, in its own right, whether or not we want to say it makes us flat out, gives us a different status. Um so it's a little more complicated. Let me let Josh answer. I have more to say about sort of that the connections that and sort of the moral standing we have and the moral consideration we deserve as a function of having the ability to imagine but let me let me let josh talk for a minute on that if he wants to
1: yeah so i was reacting a little bit to the supreme and the ownership components just because something is the best by some dimension doesn't mean that they're best by all dimensions that kind of gets to some of the stuff that peter was saying and ownership implies uh we can do whatever we want with it. And maybe that's not what you meant. <laughs> I think a better way to put it is that there is something very um, peculiar about about humans. We're not uh, we're we're very similar to other animals, but there's also something very peculiar about us. And I and I and I think that that's a an objective statement. I think if aliens from another planet came here, they would be wondering about why humans were different too. Uh, they wouldn't be wondering why the oak tree is different from the cypress tree. They'd be wondering about you know what's going on with humans for a whole host of reasons i also do think that some of the things that make us different put entailments on us so for example while i don't think because we have fully human minds we own everything i think that does certainly make us more responsible for what's around us um you know to use the uh you know to use the christian terminology is like we have we're supposed to have a good dominion over the world we're supposed to we're supposed to steward it. Um, and and I think that that's something you can make a very purely secular humanist secularist case for that too. That that because we have consciousness, that by itself is what entails certain moral responsibilities as well.
2: Yeah, I would agree. This this ability to step out, as I was talking about, to step out of the cycle, of just you know, responding to a stimulus or going according to some sort of you know um, instinctual program. Uh, is is it, you know, the the thought that we we don't have to do that that we can in some sense consider other ways of doing things and then do them is important to to think about why we might have a moral duty to begin with um, i think the the ability to have imagination also creates new possibilities for suffering that you might not have if you lack it so the ability to look far into the future and into the past and to extend your concern you know, far beyond, or, or, you know, to to other people, including family members, not just them, but other members of communities, seeing the similarities between yourselves and others and other functions, other, even other kinds of living beings is, we can do, creates all kinds of possibilities for, for, for suffering that you might not have if you are another um, kind of species as well.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's like a different, um, I think we have we're on a different um, awareness, I would say, of any other animal, and and I and I think that other animals probably know a lot more than we give them credit, especially the great apes and those that are pretty similar to us. But I think, I think everyone really has to concede that there is still a pretty large gap between us, us and them, even though like our genetics is so similar. I mean, we're basically you know just genetically modified apes, really. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's still a gap in our ability to, yeah. to conceive of the world and each other. And, and I think that gap is not it's not subjective. I think it's subjective and it's pretty it's pretty substantial too.
2: Well, it seems to reveal itself to me, you know, really vividly in things like you know, scientific advances, political organization, um, and the arts, perhaps, like these are different you know places where it's hard to see others as as as, as you're totally correct like as fundamentals are similar as may be to other animals still like how far off you know they are from you know arriving at physics or you know um beethoven or you know so so um that's you know so if i you know want to raise my sort of you know you know atheist perspective on this that's my thought is like wow that's that's really special about us, you know, and um, wherever that leads is where we should go and what we should honor about us. So that and that's kind of the, you know, with a motivating factor. And, and so my, you know, sometimes atheists, atheism is put forward as a view like, well, you know, it's too bad, you know, that um, the theological story doesn't seem to be true. That would have been really nice, but we can't really believe in it if we want to be reasonable. And I don't really, you know, I'm not drawn to atheism from that perspective so much as I am from the other perspective of like, hey, this is a kind of way of celebrating what we are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the part where I just wonder, though, Peter, is like, like I get where you're coming from. I can kind of see where you're coming from. I just don't know how... I mean, I get so much that I actually—I mean—I identify with it. I kind of agree with you. I see it the same way. I don't know how being a Christian really negates that. I guess.
2: Well, let me let me ask you a question about that because I'm curious because you have this interesting combination of like a real passion for science, but then also real interest in in seeing how it fits together with a, a religious um, conception. Um, what? How do you think about you know, like the issue of like God's intentions in in creating a, the sort of story of evolution. So this is probably in your book, or maybe you think about like, why would in you know? And there could be different possibilities. What are some of the ones you might think there are? Like, why would God have put these clues out there in the world for us to sort of really have, through a painstaking and difficult, but you know, process, just you know, discover and piece together, um, as opposed to just you know giving us the answers or putting it in the Bible and things like that. How do you, how do you think about that?
1: Well, there's a lot of questions there. I mean, like, why didn't he put it in the Bible? I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that is in the Bible. I mean, we don't have the, like the formula for the COVID vaccine in the Bible either. Right. I think part of it isn't that there, I think part of it is that the Bible's telling us a story that's important, but it's not everything that's important. Um, so, and I'm, I'm okay with that. That makes sense. It'd be really bizarre for God to have been kind of, secretly leaving like scientific clues in an ancient document for us to figure out. Now, that doesn't really make much sense. So what can be more important than this? I mean, it, it has to do stuff it has to do with relationships. I mean, you're an academic, I'm a scientist, but still, uh, I mean, I love science to be clear. It's become my, you know, my life and I love it. But the same token, like it kind of pales in comparison next to my children and my wife, right? You know, th- those relationships end up being far more important, right? And then if we really understand you know, scripture in that way is it's not so much about God trying to tell us the nuts and bolts of how the world works, as important as that is, but more about how to come into a relationship with it. that That makes a lot more sense to me. Um, that was one aspect of it. The question also too is like, why would God have just, I mean, spent all this time and effort making, you know, uh, making, doing things by evolution, we could have just popped us into existence, maybe like some young earth also asked me that. Well, I mean, maybe he could have, but I think it does say something about who he is um, that is actually, once again, really rooted in like old ways of thinking about the Christian faith. I think one thing that we learn is that creation isn't actually for us. It's It was really God did maybe more like an artist than an engineer. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not really aligned with the ID movement. I mean, they, they, they tend to kind of I mean, honestly, their picture of God just seems a little bit small for me. <laughs> What I get, when I see evolution is like this grandeur and beauty of that, that actually is like an artist kind of varying, making variations on themes and seeing and giving an autonomy to creation. So it creates things on its own and by itself at times. And just there's joy in it. And like, we're kind of like, we actually are kind of like the afterthought we're at the very end. (laughs) (laughs) We're kind of very uh, we're kind of to the side because like God doesn't really need us.
2: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So from your perspective, it's let the creation is less about us. It's not or the human it's not so, so much human-centric. It's like there is this creation, we're part of the story, but the focus in creating everything wasn't to create uh, something. Well, you know, the whole thing about humans being in God's image. And yeah, others- so there's this
1: teaching that, um, that God isn't contingent,
2: right? This is like philosophers saying this, you
1: might even know what this means better than I do. <laughs> but creation is contingent, that, that God could have done it whatever the heck way he wanted to. <laughs> um, it's not like, I mean, the only way we know, this is actually where even science arises, is this idea that creation is contingent. It doesn't like flow out of some necessary logical truths. It is rather could have been made however God wanted to. So we actually have to go study it to figure out what the heck it is. Um, that, that's like one of the core. I mean, there's a couple core theological concepts that are, you know, behind the scientific revolution. That's one of them. Um, and so this idea of contingency of creation, which means that like, if we take that seriously, it means that God didn't actually have to create us. He didn't really need us. And, and when we kind of see, like a universe that's this grand and large and, and, you know, a a story of life that's that, that long. Um, I mean, it just makes very clear that that God didn't need to make us though. He did. No, I think on the atheistic point of view, I think that's one of the puzzles too, because like, yeah. Okay. So you believe, and it might be true even, okay. That the human mind can be explained by an entirely naturalistic process, but you also have to agree that there's nothing intrinsic about, the world that demands that it produce something like humans. I mean, the world yeah. could have gone and just not produced us. I it's agree. Kind yeah. of something to be a bit stunned by. I mean, I, I think that we're not paying attention if we're not a bit stunned by the fact that we're here.
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. It, it is a stunning thing. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes I get frustrated. People say, like, so you think, you know, there's no God and it's just this and that's it. I'm like, well, Yes, but are you, do you have any idea how incredible it is to, that we even came to exist and that like this table, I, you know, like everything is 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 incredible. It's so unlikely that any of this would have happened that, you know, and, and that we're here and not just here, but we can realize that we're here and then reflect on here and try to figure some things out and try to structure a world where we do some good, um, you know, um, yes, that is part of it, and I fully agree about the absurd contingency of it. But um, you know, I try to. Well, I do. I do see that as like, wow. Well, we got to. You know, it's amazing and and it's it's incredible that we're able to make something of this. Uh, we should celebrate that, but it also comes with a, a lot of responsibility to not um, waste waste this opportunity.
1: So, so here, Peter, here, here's my question for you. Okay. So I've turned to like the young Earth creationists and I told I've asked them to kind of do something pretty crazy, kind of imagine that maybe you're correct or like we're correct on how on, on quite a bit, right? <laughs> and enter that science fiction world. And so here's a question: like, do you have the imagination to kind of reciprocate that too and kind of wonder about the possibility about whether or not there could be more? Um, you know, that?
2: sure. You mean to think like, okay, well. Imagine that, you know the there um, the theological story there is a God and, and and how would you really feel in that regard?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I am sure I think about that. I mean, um, and I do, you know, I weigh that, you know, I, I so I've said, you know, that I you know, here's here's a question I posed to myself. If you could press a button, right now and either the, the biblical story is true or the story as science tells it is true and it's up to you to pick which one is true which one what button would you push so i think i would push the science button okay so i'm, I'm giving up on um on eternal life uh possibly well i've, I've got some sort of unused views we don't need to get into about about a possibility of continuing your existence even if you're a physical being maybe not forever but past your biological death maybe possible but anyway um oh that's interesting but okay but you know things to think about when i really start to imagine the theological story i worry about certain things like what would it really be like to to exist forever do i am i sure that that's something i even understand or or am in a place to say that i would desire you know um I'm not sure, you know, if I think carefully about that, like that, that would be a good thing for me. I think um, I want to live a complete human life, definitely uh, very much. I don't know that in order to do that, I need to live forever. Um, and what about, you know, the you know, it's the suffering that occurs and the terrible tragedies that occur, would that sort of help to set those things right? Um, again, it's like, well, would it would it really make it better if um if okay well a god exists and it's part of that god's plan that these things happen would that really resolve it for me uh, i'm not sure that that would um also so i yeah you know, so i do meditate on that and think about that at times and and then i i you know i'm not you know i'm not saying i couldn't be swayed at this time or any other but i do think that you know if i right now if i had to press a button i'm going to go with the the story, this, that, as I've put it, tries to celebrate you know, human imagination. Why not, why
1: not press both buttons? Like It's not an either or.
2: Well, in my story, it is.
0: <laughs>
2: okay. If, fair enough. if I could press both but that's the so share. What if there were a third button? The both button.
1: So you're kind of talking about like it's a trade-off. I either have this or I have
2: this. Yeah, but if you can't have both.
1: I mean that's, I mean, a, that's yeah, both like that's like a very hard situation. I mean at you know um I it, it's kind of a hard counterfactual for me to think about because having gone through a lot of sense of conflict and kind of coming to seeing how they don't conflict it's kind of hard to hard to undo that.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> think about it. I just don't see
2: any conflict there. <laughs> yeah. So let me push you not, not push but just rephrase the question sure, you push. All right, all right. The question you said it would be when I said, like, why did God, you know, place these clues, as it were, in the world? And maybe you kind of answered this, but you said, well, it would have been odd for him to put weird clues in the Bible about this evolution story. That's kind of odd. But my first thought about that was like, why isn't why isn't it similarly odd that he put those little clues in the world itself? Um, Because that's also his sort of creation. and could have not put those little clues there could have but not. i mean i think evolution's true though so i mean
1: i mean yeah. i think the clues are there because evolution i mean it's not
2: well okay they're they're not okay yeah so it goes back to your answer about why the story of evolution is true at all and to it being part of this sort I mean, of it's one thing
1: if i tell you a story like if i tell you how i came to be in southern california born from two indian immigrants i didn't mention evolution at all that's just, that's not the story I'm telling I'm telling you a different story, right? Um, but now if I go, will go look at, you know, genetics and all that, then I'm gonna, because it is, that's the story that genetics tells. That's the story that biology is telling. So I, I just wouldn't expect that every story I, I tell to be in every place I hear a story, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it goes back to the question then I guess of why why bother to create in a way that gives rise to this long history of evolution? And I gave you one. Point, I think you did kind of speak to that about something about the other Another one,
1: way I've been thinking about it, though, too, is I think when I look at how the world is and kind of the type of the character of God I see in the Bible, I think one possibility is I think that maybe he actually wanted to create a world where it's possible to be a gratified atheist. Like he doesn't actually didn't want to create a world where, um, you know, where the, our only way to be in relationship with them was be the choosing between, like, this horrible, incoherent world that made no sense versus, like, being in a relationship. But he actually wanted to create a world where was like, some relative autonomy to people who, who actually didn't want to be in a relationship and go forward. Like, that, there's a certain type of grace associated with it, like a common grace. Okay. So I don't get, like, a, look, I mean, there's different ways to conceive of the Christian God. I get that. I mean, mm-hmm. and some of them... I don't think are correct like there's this idea of him being like a highly controlling person who's trying to like force everyone to do something mm-hmm. but frankly i just don't think that becomes very coherent with history or with what the bible is saying in the end is i think what i see when i, I see jesus as a person who's just profoundly good Who's making himself known and wants to be in, and declaring god and wants to be in a relationship with us but he doesn't force it um, you know it's there for us if we want it but it doesn't force it and consistent with that like he's created a world that doesn't require his like you know detailed intervention on in every single second he's created a world that that we can make sense of it um uh, you know without having to constantly refer back to his action and all of that because it's uh, i mean it's like a relative autonomy it's like a type of common grace so you can be a gratified atheist if you wanted
2: to That's interesting yeah I've, I've never heard that perspective on that God, sort of like the, the 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 understanding parent wants to give you know the, the teens the space to be themselves, <laughs> kind of thing. You know, yeah, I get that. Uh, that that seems
0: consistent with the. With the I'd like to interject here if I may, and, and and help us to turn a little bit of a corner. This has been great. I, I'm enjoying listening to this exchange. Um, I I'd like to propose uh, a different uh, topic to turn into for for a few moments, and that's this notion of morality or obligation. It's it's come up a little bit already in your discussion, but um, from each of your perspectives, to what extent can we speak coherently about a human being having obligations to his fellow human? I'll leave it at that. It's a bit vague.
1: Well, I think you were kind of hitting on this before. I mean, I think one key aspect of the human mind is that we have this ability to consider counterfactuals, to kind of step out of kind of like the that immediate causal loop, to kind of think about larger relationships. I mean, one way to, um, I think it's pretty striking, is that we might be unique in being the only animals on earth that have a concept of grandfathers. I mean, it, it seems that... Um, Killer whales and elephants have a concept of grandmothers because they are in these long, uh, multi-generational maternal units, but grandfathers don't recognize their grandkids because they go away. And then almost every other animal, they'll recognize their parents or they won't, but they won't recognize their grandparents and the grandparents won't recognize their grandkids. But we have this ability not just to recognize our grandparents, but then to kind of start talking about great grandparents, great great grandparents, and to think about our children, great grandchildren, great great grandchildren, even for the kind that long chain of ancestry. Right? Um, We're able to look at a world that has always been unjust and be upset about it and want a world that's just. We have, a, I mean, that, that's a bizarre thing too. I mean, the world has never been just, yet we're, we rage against the injustice of the world and we want a just world, even though we've never seen a just world. I mean, these are the sorts of things where we can also just, we can also imagine ourselves in someone else's situation and see and empathize in, in a different sort of way that I think, I think that awareness, I think comes with entailments and responsibilities.
2: Yeah, well, I I agree with, um, yeah, a lot of those connections you're drawing there between, you know, essentially between imagination and and, and having those moral obligations. Um, I think chatting briefly with Connor before, I think you kind of linked this question a little bit to like, especially from like an atheistic perspective, in what sense do we have legitimate obligations? And um, just to speak that a little bit, um, you know, it's this funny thing about that is, yeah, I, so my parents were not religious, so I was never raised with religion. Um, and, um, but I always felt very strong moral obligations, right? (laughs) Like from day one of all different kinds, you know, so then to to, to someone to come like, well, to say like, well, how could there be no obligations if, if there's not a God? And to me, it's like, well, what do you mean? How could there not be obligations? There's obviously (laughs) obligations all over the place. Uh, so what do you mean? Um, so I do think, you know, someone could try to say, well, I'm going to give you the argument for why there can't be obligations if there is no God. In which case I'd say, well, that's going to be a tough argument to give. I mean, certain people, people do sometimes try to give it, but they've got a real high bar to cross given how obvious it seems to be that, you know, someone's in pain, great pain, and you could easily help them or something incredibly unfair is happening to someone and you can easily reverse that that we have a, you know, prima facie, we have a really strong obligation to help. Um, It's going to take a really powerful argument to show that that's just an illusion somehow. Um, And I don't think it's an illusion. I think we do have these um, obligations. I think, you know, as Josh was saying, a lot of the reason we have them traces to our cognitive abilities to to not be caught in a cycle of cause and effect to consider, you know, things from other people's perspective, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. and um that doesn't mean it's always easy to know what the right thing is in any given case it's often very difficult to determine that um um, and philosophers you know like to debate and argue about what's the basis of right and wrong you know is it all about increasing happiness and decreasing uh, unhappiness is it something about acting in accordance with rules that you could allow everyone else to to act in accordance with you can debate those debates go on um But that can all go on while we all are accepting, you know, until someone gives us really great reason to think otherwise that there are these obligations in the world.
1: Yeah, I I think, um, yeah, I I don't disagree with you. I think, I think all of us know that there are moral obligations, at least I really hope that we all do. And I think most people do, I mean, unless they're kind of in a very antisocial sort of place, but, um, I guess the question that comes up is how much of this is is like like a fundamental reality of what's good and what's not good versus just a contingent fact of how we happen to develop i think thanks where it comes down to right so we tend to think that altruism is good with maybe some qualifications right is that is that just a contingency of how we arose and so if we encountered klingons one day that just had a completely different sense of right and wrong <laughs> that there isn't actually a fundamental right or wrong it's just like that they're they're just have a different nature so are we kind of falling for the naturalistic fallacy i think that's where the issue comes from and i think while we can all still kind of have these pro-social ideas of ethics and morality there is still i think this puzzle and this question over it about is that actually granted in something more fundamental than just our nature i mean do you see that that question there?
2: Yeah. Um... I, I think you know it, it is a difficult question, you know, what makes something good or bad? Um, and um, so I always brush up a little against um, a little bit of philosophy of religion in, in my intro classes as a way of moving on to discussing different ethical theories and a way to try to motivate people who are coming from a religious, religious background to be interested in the question is uh, of like, what's the basis of good and bad? Is um, to rehearse one of Plato's uh, arguments in the Euthyphro. And are you familiar with this uh, argument? So it, it goes something like this: He's played, You know, Socrates is debating somebody um, who's a religious. You know, um, about the, the question they're debating is this: um, Certain acts are, de- are are good acts to do, right? And then in the question he poses is: Are the, are, the, are those acts good because um, God? commands you to do them or uh does god command you to do them because those are the good things so it's kind of where's the dependency relationship was was it was was the act not good not good or bad until god commanded it or was it already good and then that's why god commanded it and then um the way that at least plato wants to push it is to say look no one wants to say that god just arbitrarily picks things to say do this do this and, and now that happens to be good part of like believing in the goodness of God is that God would only command you to, to do things that were good before he commanded them, right? And he, that he commands them because they're good. And so if you're willing to accept that much, then all parties need an account of what it is that makes things good. Why, why did God command those things? What is it about them that made them good enough to be the, the sort of things that a good God would command? So it's, it's just to say that, yeah, I think it's a deep puzzle. But one that we have to confront, at least possibly have to confront, you know, whether whether we are, you know, um, religious or not. Yeah,
1: I agree with you. I mean, I think that uh, in a way, you know, one of the grand questions is what does it mean to be human? Right. So we're going to be sitting here talking for days if they let us. They won't. But we could. It, right <laughs> we're gonna go for dinner later we'll probably oh, be talking yeah. about it. yeah but there's this other grand question of like what is the good right that's another one of those grand questions uh, that we could do the same on um maybe it's a sub question of the first one i don't know but um but that is like a big challenge to figure that out i think though that even that telling is a little bit simplistic though because if we do think that there is a God that's actually not just about good and evil, but actually being in a relationship with us, there can be things that are, are good because he says it like in the same way how, um, you know, uh, my wife might ask me to bring her flowers for her birthday. I mean, flowers are not evil. They're not bad, but there's something that's particularly good about them because she asked for them. Right. And, and, and in that relational context, there's something particularly good about a husband giving her wife flowers because she likes that type of flower and asked for it that would not be true if she had not asked for it and asked me for chocolates and i decided not to give her chocolates and give her flowers instead that would actually be bad and so i do think that there can be an inner relationship where things that are that there's a goodness in things that arises out of being asked for them or asked to do them that extends beyond the intrinsic nature of those things does that make some sense
2: yeah that that's I, I, yeah, I could I see the example, yeah, you know how how far we could extend that, you know there's the questions, you know, like um well, I don't think it's a computer. Yeah. So I don't think it's true yeah. that
1: that murder is wrong because God merely because God asked us not to do it. it doesn't no. matter how
2: happy it would make your wife, you know, <laughs> if you, you knock me yeah. off, you know, like. Uh, but I get it. I'm I not giving a complete account, just
1: a counterexample, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, I like it as as a possible way of reframing the question. I, I see that, and I could see how there's this relationship, a special relationship out of which. Uh, it's, it's but you know, not when it comes hard.
1: to these religious, these religious. Um, versus non-religious ways of thinking. I think the fundamental issue isn't to actually, it's not It's not gonna be coherence primarily because ultimately we don't think God we can fully understand. And, and even as an atheist, you don't think you can understand all the universe, right? That can't be the primary thing. I think it really comes down to actually epistemology. How would we know uh, one way or the other? I think that's actually the core question.
2: How would we, we know, how would we know what in particular,
0: sorry?
1: How would we know um, whether, or not there is a God or whether or not natural world is all there is. I think those are, those are the sorts of questions about how we would know. I mean, it's not so much the metaphysics of it or the coherence even, and that, as a, you know, a philosopher might push back. I would just say that we just don't know enough to, to judge coherence uh, very well between these different things. Um, that, that's the main reason why I think they're both sufficiently coherent that, um, that you can't judge on the remaining piece of, co- of incoherence, just because it's there's just too much we don't understand. I think it really comes down to like epistemological question instead of like how could mm-hmm. we know?
2: Well, okay. So the main things that philosophers say in this regard is in terms of like going, you know, moving to the question. Well, we can't we can't know for sure. To so why do you what reason do you have to actually actively doubt this approach? is uh, the, you know, the problem of evil, uh, just the problem of, you know, apparent excess of undeserved suffering in the world um, and this being at odds, you know, and so with, with the idea that there's a, a good intention behind um, the creation of the world. Um, and, you know, there are definitely their responses to this, um, you know, appealing to the need for people to have free will and self-determination and so on. Um, the, the, where things seem to ground out and get a little difficult for me is okay. You know, I can see how there would need to be a bit, some suffering, some evil, but on the scale that we've seen historically, right. Isn't that a big gratuitous, you know, this shouldn't, you know, if you, wouldn't you have, shouldn't you have kind of come in and put the brakes a little bit, you know, in the middle of the Holocaust? What are you, what are you talking about?
0: I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt here. Because I want to bring it back around to what it means to be human. I think we need to bring you both on another day to talk about the problem of evil. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. What what a lovely thing to discuss. But (laughs) um, I do want to change it, uh, change things up a bit to move into our last subject uh, before we move on to uh, the Q and R. And so um, for. People who are tuning in and watching, if you have questions, be sure to uh, send those in. We'll be starting some Q&R here shortly. But uh, a third subject I'd love to hear you both comment on, Josh, maybe we can start with you with this, is uh, in our day, uh, technology just seems to be advancing at such a rapid rate You know, over the last few centuries and even the last few decades. Um, what is technology doing, if anything, to the human experience? It, it, are we... Sort of participating in the next stage of our own evolution if you will but you know what 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 is technology doing to what it means to be human or what might it do Well, so technology has always been a part of what it
1: means to be human in important ways i mean uh there I'm, I'm like debating whether or not i would want to go into like a, a short review of history but i'll, I'll restrain myself but <laughs> Uh, but you know, that's like one of that's also one of the very distinctive things about being human is that we, um, we can actually adapt ourselves to any climate. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we can, we can build tools to accomplish anything that really animal animal has to just rely on their innate abilities and strength to do that. We, we, we build machines to do things and it's been going on that way for a very, very long time. I mean, even just basic things like being able to make clothing is such a big deal in terms of how it impacts where we where our ancestors lived and how how quickly we became a global species but um something is a little bit different about it right now like if we think about like you know you know i'm I'm, I'm a little bit past 40 so if we think about kind of my generation like my generation we we did not grow up with with um with hulu and netflix i mean it was actually just a tv right and And then there was dial-up. So we're called the dial-up generation sometimes now, which is a lot better than something that's not quite Generation X, but whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, now today we have like, we have like the internet on our phones and, you know, the way how our kids are. My, my kid is like used to like watching movies on an iPad. Um, and I, I think what's happened is there's definitely just a much higher increased uh, rate of change on the, on the technological side. And it's far more invasive in the sense that it actually sits like in our homes in a much more direct way and in our just our day to day experience in a direct way uh, to the point where um, I think it's becoming harder and harder to imagine how people lived, you know, 50 years ago. And I think that's just going to be increasingly so. And I think the changes are happening a lot faster than we have the ability right now to adapt to and understand. I mean, you can see that like a lot of social media debates about, you know, is Facebook good or bad? and is you know we all got kicked off of facebook for a day and was it a better day or not who knows because we were all on twitter <laughs> you know then we were back to facebook so then like you know is that uh, is that like a really better type of humanity well it's kind of hard to imagine going back at this point point. and so i think we're at a point where like the world is really changing a lot but we don't really necessarily yet have a way to adapt to it as a society quickly enough
2: yeah um so I agree. I, I agree with a little bit of that anxiety at the end, kind of wondering, where are things heading? Um, um, the, the the rise of social media has, on one hand, it seems like it's facilitated quick development and change of certain social norms. Like if you think of how long before this, like the the, the movement to sort of normalize and allow, you know, Uh, legalized gay marriage and things like that that sort of crept along through the 20th century and early 20th and and now very quickly changing norms around um being transgender and gender norms i think that happened like at a very fast rate i think people who used to be in smaller more marginalized communities can quickly come together and get a stronger voice and exert social influence but uh and, and so that could lead to you know um uh, great things in society. Uh, but we've also seen you know how easy it is for people to dig in further into their own particular worlds and interests and 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 develop sort of uh, and and shield themselves off from you know the the community that's right around them and 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 it's divided families and things in many cases where, where the kind of polarization that can be encouraged by um by social media, so there's there's those two things going on um, um, that are great and but also worrisome. Uh, and you know, as far as like what it means to be human, developing, you know, this is interesting. I mean, you know, I guess part of what it means to be human is what it means to be in a human society, and so as society changes, what it means to be human will change as well. Uh, there's also, but you know, there's also this more individual. Questions about augmenting our abilities with say artificial intelligence and things like that. Um, it's I'm not cu- I'm not sure where that's going to to lead. Honestly, I do think we'll see before too long, you know, artificial intelligence that that can rival anything humans can do, and maybe can be more imaginative than humans in a way. we could, maybe we would be seen more as using it as a tool to increase our imaginations um you know um but there will be some difficult questions to face up to about um what is it then that makes us special uh, or especially deserving of moral consideration if uh, we're creating things that have these similar capacities for imagination
1: i think one of the continual things that we have to work through too is how you know this has been a big topic in philosophy too to what extent can and does particular technologies dehumanize us too and really squelch, you know, some of the more important parts of what it means to be
2: human, right? Yeah, I right. So, <laughs> so they, yeah, somehow our hum- humanity is not encouraged by everyone sort of sitting and looking down and scrolling through and, you know, um, and, and so it does seem to be... Uh, so, yeah, so it's interesting, like... Wh- What are these parts of humanity that are that are in threat? Um,
1: Well, I'd say in the social media world, one of the core questions is how do we deal with people across differences without demonizing them? I mean, like I think like the the trend in like you know virtual communities where you can kind of do high degrees of selection for people you agree with is you get a smaller people you really agree with that can very clearly and uncontroversially define their enemies that they're going to demonize yeah and then when you do that then it's um i think it really dehumanizes not only the person you're de- you're demonizing it also really dehumanizes you i mean uh i think i think the way society works is that we're in a common society whether we like it or not and frankly we don't always like the people that we're stuck with <laughs> but part of uh of what it means to serve the common common good is to find ways to bridge across those differences, to find places of common ground where you can really serve people you even disagree with, to find things that find ways how we can be better together. And if and when um, you know virtual communities subvert that, I think that's 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 one of the ways how it dehumanizes us.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's very easy not to take full measure the human being behind any particular statement or image or idea when they're just you know popping up on your phone as some caricature um and so yeah there is there is an issue of how we're going to overcome or confront the the sort of natural capacity of social media and things to divide people or pit them to be interested you know the, the Facebook content that got the most clicks is sort of stuff that made people angry or upset. And, you know, and fire, and so that's the stuff that is going to, you know, pit you against someone else as opposed to revealing what everyone shares together, you know, despite their differences. Um, and, um, this seems like it's going to be an ongoing tension and struggle and how those, how those are, are, are regulated, monitored, you know, um, the the you know we've got the the need for free speech and expression and, and, and getting together in groups, against the you know pitted against um, this sort of corrosive polarization that's been going on. Um, everybody knows about it, you know, and I don't think anyone yet has the the key to dissolving it.
1: Hey, but hey, I think conversations like this are are one of the bright spots, too. So this is only possible because of the modern internet age, too. Like, there's tons of people across across the area kind of sitting and listening, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? And we're two people who disagree with each other on important things. And there's still something valuable about... I mean, honestly, I enjoy the conversations most of the people I disagree with. (laughs) That's where you find out the most interesting things and where you might actually have things exposed to you and learn something, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think then, and that's why you know, I, I was like, you know, I should do this, this forum, you know, even though it's not the kind of thing I normally do. It's not, you know, I don't, you know, um, normally, you know, I go to lots of academic conferences, but there's usually people who are narrowly focused on my topics and who probably have a similar sort of many of them have a similar sort of overall metaphysical view of things. So it's really it is important. I know like, it's actually it's important to do something different and talk to
0: people you wouldn't ordinarily talk to, especially about important things like this. So yeah. well, we have two people who have written in uh, people you wouldn't ordinarily talk to, okay. so I can turn to them. Uh, how's that for a segue? Um, <laughs> Perfect. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure who this one's directed to, so I'm just going to read it as I've received it and then let either of you comment uh, as you'd like. So so. The first question is, the world is clearly contingent and fine-tuned, in quotes, uh, but one could simply reduce these two propositions to statistical odds. That is, we won a cosmic lottery. Uh, Would that not take out some of the mysticism and remove it from the non-random natural selection uh, theory? Uh, So I guess the idea is here, uh, can't we just say that we won the cosmic lottery in be done with
1: it. I think that that really misunderstands quite a bit so first of all I think that the fine-tuning argument there's a lot of people who debate it back and forth but the basic idea just to lay it out is that um, that there's several physical constants that, that have very high sensitivity it means if you tweak them just a little bit that you would get a universe that wasn't hospitable to life and so the idea is that there had to be something that um, And then maybe there's an intelligent designer that set that. And maybe that's true, I don't know. The other possibility is that maybe there's some underlying relationship between those that really constrains them to be those numbers. And so it's not really as lucky as you might take take it. Um, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that, uh, there, that this is the one set that we know about, but there's a whole bunch of other sets of constants that would actually produce a world with, with people like that. And um, then also, people look at it from the point of view of like maybe there's actually many different trials of the universe, um, like in a multiverse, uh, you know, through cosmic inflation and things like that. So then, um, it's just selection. It's like a weak anthropic principle on the fact that I mean, we're here to observe these numbers, so therefore, their numbers that have to be consistent with our our, our existence. Like, like I think all that's true, but ultimately, I think the, the issue is that we don't really have all the information to really judge odds on it. So I think it's more undefined than unlikely or likely so i I don't think it really solves that problem i think a better way to think about it is this is that um there's probably four key things in our origins that even if you can explain them from an entirely materialistic point of view it still begs the question because you can imagine like an alternate world you can imagine an alternate world where these things weren't true One is, why is there something rather than nothing? You can imagine a universe where there's nothing rather than something. Yet, that's a contingency in our world that we have something rather than nothing. Another thing is, why is there life instead of only non-life? I mean, it's very easy. I mean, frankly, everywhere we look with the telescope seems to be a place without life. Um, So why is it that there's any life at all? There's nothing that demands that life be produced. So why is it that we see that? And the next one is consciousness. Why is it not just plant life and like you know, brain-dead, you know, tardigraves going around doing things? Why is it that we see consciousness and finally the human mind? Why do we have something like the human mind? Like all four of those are pretty grand contingencies. You can sort of explain it by the weak we anthropic principle in the sense of saying, well, we're here to observe it, therefore we need a world that's consistent with them. But that still seems to really miss the profound. Support prize we should be feeling at that i don't think it's possible to really judge odds on it we don't have enough information to judge odds judge odds but it should be very surprising i mean that's not something uh this is the world that just didn't have to be this way so now the philosopher can clean up what i said and get it more <laughs> yeah
2: no i'm following along pretty well there uh you know um the fine-tuning argument to me the different what You could, uh, um, sometimes I wonder about that argument and following way, just saying like, well, look, what you could say, it's really unlikely that humans existed or it's really, is that the question? Or is it really unlikely that something extraordinary would happen? And those are different questions. Um, And um, I think there are many different ways the universe could have been, extraordinary and amazing that where we didn't exist. So, you know, or where there was no life. So now it may be hard to imagine what those things are for us, but of course our view of what it is for something to be really extraordinary and, and incredible is a little bit biased, right? You know, we're like, it's something that includes us. But, um, you know, so yeah, on one hand, yeah, I think, you know, if you really rolled the cosmic dice, I suppose that even makes sense. Um, yeah, you might not get us, and 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 it is, and you could think of it as us as humans winning a cosmic lottery of sorts. Um, I don't think there are unlikelihoods though is an argument that there was design behind it. I think there are many other things that rolling the dice. Universe could have gone all kinds of amazing different ways, and this is one of them. Um, it involves us. Uh, it had to go some way. Um, See, I think so. it's
1: just the problem though, because like. Finding tuning argument aside, why is it that we exist is still a fundamental question that I don't think we have a good answer for.
2: I mean, why is there something rather than nothing? Or why, why is it that we exist? Why is it that,
1: that Peter Hassan like a, like why do why does the human consciousness exist, right? I mean, we know that it does, like we we perceive it, we we know it exists, but why does it exist? I don't think that um there's a good account of that yet.
2: Of of consciousness, of why consciousness exists, or why
1: why the human mind exists, like why why do we exist? Like you know, we think, therefore we are. But why do we even exist?
2: Okay, it would oh, I could keep following up, or did you want to get to the other question, Connor? And I mean, I I, I think
1: this is to... kind of turning the fine tuning argument on its head, right? So look, I'm, I'm actually granting that there that the weak anthropic principle does somewhat resolve fine tuning to some extent though i am content to let philosophers really debate this
0: just to make sure that we have time to get through a few of them. um so uh, uh, we've got another person who has written and this is specifically for peter so so peter um, a form of imagination previously mentioned was empathy what might be the strongest um, atheistic explanation for the development of empathy especially if acting on empathy would uh, ultimately be very costly or self-sacrificial
2: well, that's a great question um so, yeah, so there are various explanations you can give, like, well, look, it's, it's ultimately beneficial to us to help others and live in a society uh, where we support each other. Um, that incre- increased our survival and so on, and above, uh, compared to uh, animals that didn't collaborate, and being able to ident- have empathy for someone else, um, you know, increases uh, the likelihood that you will help them and collaborate with them. And so, um, and, and that's overall good for the survival of you and, and, and your community. So you can give an explanation like that, uh, that I think makes a good amount of sense. I think th- the one thing to keep in mind, um, though, is that even if you accept sort of the, the picture we get from, nat- from the theory of evolution and and without a god involved, you um, it requires it doesn't mean that every trait we have was arrived at through sort of natural selection a lot of what we have is kind of the result of a random mutation hopefully that didn't get in the way of our survival so mutations that kind of really keep us from surviving are not going to you know get passed along that well but other stuff comes along and maybe it, one of those things might be a tendency to help other people even when it doesn't help yourself as long as it's not so strong that it leads to you know the the death of your your, your own death or your failure to, to to pass on your genes and so on then it'll continue along as, as part of what humans are and potentially like a really great part of what they are so you know um you can accept it you know, it's just a general point about you know the traits of human beings yes there's often an evolutionary story tracing to competition to the survival of the fittest for white habit but that it doesn't It doesn't mean that every single trait we have arose just for that reason. And so it's quite possible that empathy and and some forms of altruism are just traits we happen to have and good traits, um, even if they don't um, always uh, improve our own survival.
0: We've got uh, one final question uh, for both of you. Um, Are there certain ways of using imagination that might serve to make us better humans? Whatever that might mean, individually or collectively. Let Josh go with that first.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. To kind of build off the empathy thing, I think that um, I think intentionally imagining, like the people, really trying to build empathy through imagination, I think is one of the one of the most important ways we can really start to pursue this. Really think through the people you disagree with most, to understand their point of view and where they're coming from, and to really, for a moment, kind of let leave aside the way you think about things to really understand where they're coming from. I think so much good comes from that. Um, uh, Jerry Coyne is an atheist biologist um, who doesn't like Christians very much. I've had a couple run-ins with him. (laughs) But uh, one of the interesting things about it is there was actually an article written about me that quoted someone else. In a way, that was a little bit negative about atheists. It wasn't a quote by me. It wasn't a quote by the, it, it, and I had nothing to do with it. But he was really upset about this. And I went, and I remember um, kind of like interacting with the bad and asking, "Well, what is actually the problem here?" And then I understood actually this point was going on. He's just very sensitive to how Christians demonize atheists. <laughs> and and frankly, as I've seen it. I actually agree with them. Christians shouldn't talk about atheists that way. I mean, they're, they're people that are loved by God and the image of God. We don't talk about, we, we shouldn't talk about atheists the way we do. I mean, they're our neighbor too. And, and I remember just realizing that and realizing, oh, you know, if I was an atheist, I would feel exactly how Jerry is. and I might even react just as strongly negatively as he is. And, um, and that was important, I think to actually take the time to sit down and understand and pause and see where he's coming from. And I guess the other place where I think imagining is really important is I think again about you know, Martin Luther King and I have a dream. You know, we have a broken world and maybe this is the best world that, that, that we can see and we can empirically measure. Maybe, maybe not, but how are we going to get a better world? It's going to be when we realize it's broken and try and imagine something better. Like, what could be better than this? And to really think through that in like a deep way, so that maybe
2: we can actually start to build it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with those thoughts. Um, um, you know, one interesting thing to note about empathy, in particular, going you know back to that. Um, I think Josh rightly noted, like the kind of empathy that imagination really enables is empathizing with someone who you weren't immediately already like, or you don't see yourself as like. That's the important, morally important kind of empathy. Um, And because there've been lots of, you know, psychological studies done on empathy and how it motivates moral behavior. And and people are much likely to help someone if they're already told that, well, you two answered a, a personality questionnaire very similarly or you have very similar likes in magazines and, and, and other things like that. And if they're told that, they are much more likely to help that person. And you say, well, okay, great. Empathy motivates behavior, but you can also see as extremely biased. And, and so when we're talking about the need for empathy, you know, more broadly, we're interested in the kind of empathy that like, requires a real feat of imagination to get outside of your own sort of way of approaching things to then see, Uh, How someone else might uh, uh, see things and then empathize, which can be an uncomfortable thing to do, you know, like it's unpleasant, like anytime you've been in an argument with someone close to you, right, are you sure they're wrong, sure they're wrong, until that moment, when you're like, wait a minute, they're actually right, you know, (laughs) and what's happened in that switch, you've come, you've come, you're like, oh, kicking and screaming, maybe, but you've kind of come around and and you you you've allowed yourself to see things as they're seeing them and that takes a real act of of imagination that doesn't feel great at the first but you know it it brings about a lot of good um so um you know i, I, I agree you know with, with the with the need for that and to to encourage that ability and i think it's very difficult to encourage that ability you know one way to do it is not to say you people don't know how to imaginatively empathize, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? So be more like us and start being imaginative with your empathy, you know, like what? Now we're just back in, you know, where we were. So, um, <laughs> that, you know, it's a delicate thing, right? That's almost like a, a spirit, you know, a teaching you would, you would want from your, you know, your pastor, your, your spiritual advisor, you know, how can I develop that ability to empathize beyond my own perspective? Um, and someone needs to have a good capacity to incul- inculcate that in someone else, um, which is a delicate thing.
1: Well, the way how Jesus talked about it is, he said that um, you know even the heathen, you know, love their families, but but you're supposed to love your enemies. So it's like a really right. simple statement, right? Right. It's this idea of like it's not actually about you know how loving are you to the people that are close to you. It's actually. You know, how willing are you to love the people that that you hate? (laughs) That's the ones that you don't like. How willing are you to to try to understand them? And that's that's a hard hard teaching. But I would also say that as we kind of enter into that, we do actually, in that type of imagination, I'd say we find something very real. We encounter something real about the best parts of what it means to be human, right?
2: Oh, I, I agree, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's you know, um it's it's it it takes so much going beyond anything that feels immediate or easy or you know instinctual even. There is a kind of a push. Uh and 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 that um we need to, you know, try to encourage that in our children, you know, and make computers partisan. And it's difficult these days to encourage that in a sort of a partisan polarized atmosphere, but you know, you have to think about that um, you know, uh, very carefully, you know, when talking to your kids about things or, you know, current events and things like it's it's very difficult to uh not already teach uh this is the one way to look at things and to shut down a child's ability to empathize with someone who's quite different. Um, but yeah, I think that's at least something that we need to keep in mind um, in the forefront of our minds. Like when when is it more appropriate to, to try to remain balanced in this increasingly polarized uh, society?
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Veritas Forum Event Archives. If you enjoyed this discussion, please rate, review and subscribe. And if you'd like more Veritas Forum content, visit us at veritas.org. Thank you again for joining us as we explore the ideas that shape our lives.